Good morning again. Or maybe I should say howdy. 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 Yeah, that's better. Message title, who, who noticed the board outside that has the sermon message on it? Anybody read it? Crash and Cradle, right, you got it. That was the title I gave to Trish, and she dutifully had it put up on the board, and uh, that's not the title of my sermon. Um, when I came up with the title earlier in the week, um, I have to admit I only had a very tiny little seed of an idea that went along with it and hopefully I can later this year maybe kind of come up with uh, what I wanted to with that title but however what happened is I kept reading about various biblical subjects and contemplating the lectionary for this Sunday and I found that that seed of an idea sort of disappeared so um, so I, to those of you who pay attention to these things, I apologize that my message here this morning will have almost nothing to do with that tiny little seed of an idea of the title in the worship bulletin and on the sign. However, on that note, I am not above appropriating any ideas you might have on crash and cradle, so any ideas that you give to me, be forewarned, I will use them later in a sermon. Uh, I'm not proud, good ideas, great ideas can often be found when and where you least expect them to appear. So, that said, the new message title is Prepare and Repent. Now, Christmas is almost upon us. It's a joyous time for us to be alive and gathered here together with Christ, with our friends, our family, our brethren, to celebrate the day of the birth of our Lord in Bethlehem. But before that joyous day, we have the season of Lent. Oh, I'm sorry, of Advent. <laughs> Getting ahead of myself. Season of Advent <laughs> allows us to both remember and joyously anticipate the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Through his birth, his life, his execution and resurrection, we can see the beginnings of the promise of God's hand in our ultimate forgiveness and redemption. But as we are reminded through our gospel lesson today from Matthew chapter 3, that Chris read really well, amen to that, in our remembrance and anticipation, we must take care to prepare ourselves for this first coming of Jesus. Now, the more I read this little story in Matthew, the more interesting it got. And I have to admit, I went down a bunch of bunny trails all the way through this thing. Um, and it was a real struggle in many ways to keep this reasonable length. So um, forgive me if I uh, accidentally go down a bunny trail, I'll try to keep myself from doing that. But it's a really fascinating story because it is the first place where we get this real intersection of why Jesus came, what he was wanting to do, and what we were expecting, or I should say the people at the time were expecting when he showed up. And for that, you're going to need some background, which I'll give you here in a minute. 
um, the story itself is pretty basic. It's about a guy named John, who is now either called John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. There are various other names that are given to him depending on the sect of Christianity that you're dealing with. Um, but he was living in the wilderness, subsisting on insects and honey. And believe me, if you've ever eaten an insect, you need the honey. Um, and clothing himself in camel hair and leather and living as an ascetic, really, out in the wilderness. And then he comes to the River Jordan, which is on the eastern side of the ancient kingdom of Judea, um, north of the Dead Sea. So he comes to the Jordan River and starts talking to people, starts proclaiming things to people. And within all the stuff that he said, he had, I think, two main points that he wanted to get across. And those two points are prepare and repent. Now, the passage starts out by describing John as he appeared out of the wilderness. Um, and he's then uh, described by the author of Matthew um, based on a, as fulfilling a prophecy in the book of Isaiah, which is actually a conflation in Matthew between Isaiah, Micah, and um, Exodus. But most of it is on Isaiah 40, verse 3. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. There's an alternative translation to this, which could be important, depending on where the comma goes in the sentence. That alternate translation is, and I want you to think about this later today, the voice of one crying out, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. The only change is the change in where the paths are. Okay, is the voice crying out in the wilderness or are the paths that we are to prepare in the wilderness? Think on it. Now, in the story, John is described as baptizing folks in the Jordan River. The people there came from all over Judea, uh, especially Jerusalem, the capital at the time. And the, Jerusalem, of course, at the time was the capital and the center of Jewish faith, of Jewish religion and ritual, of religious observance. And among these people were members of two sects of Judaism, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, who were these people? Because it kind of plays into how John reacts to them when he recognizes who they are. The Pharisees were one sect of, of Judaism at the time. They are considered the ancestors of modern Judaism, okay? Um, they're also described by various scholars, both Jewish and Christian and secular, as kind of the blue-collar people of Judaism, okay? So um, they were not necessarily priests, though some probably might have been. They were not the elite. They were the, I guess you could say, working people of Judea or of, of Judaism. Um, the Pharisees believed, for those of you who don't know, believed in the written law, okay? 
which is the first five books of what we call the Old Testament called the Torah. They believed in that. They also believed as an equal to the written law, the oral law, which is the interpretation or interpretations of the Torah, the written law. Those were of equal weight to them, much like we have our U.S. Constitution and the laws that the Supreme Court interprets from the Constitution have the same weight as the constitutional law itself. So these were equal in the Pharisees' sight. <clears throat> these uh, interpretations are known as the oral or traditional law. These were later written down, just as an aside, these are later written down and become something you may have heard of called the Talmud, which is a body of interpretations which goes along with the Torah. The Pharisees also believed in an afterlife. And they also believed that God would punish the wicked in the afterlife and reward the righteousness, or the reward the righteous. They also believed in a coming Messiah that would bring about an era of world peace. That's the Pharisees. Keep that in mind. The Sadducees were almost totally different. The Sadducees were the priests and the elite of the Jewish religious society. Their main beef with the Pharisees was that they rejected the oral law. They insisted on a literal interpretation of the written law, the Torah, and they also rejected the concept of an afterlife because the Torah does not speak of the afterlife. And there's nobody who's going to interpret it that it does. So they were very rigid in what they believed. And historically, the Pharisees survived the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. The Sadducees, sadly to say, not a pun, but sort of, um, did not survive. The, the, the sect died out soon after the destruction of the temple because the temple was a central, a big part of their, of their belief and observance. So, all that said, these two people were present at the Jordan River when John the Baptist was there and baptizing people. And many of them, we don't know for sure, but since there were a lot of them there, there were probably a lot of them baptized. Some sincerely, probably some just kind of hedging their bets. So why were they out there at the River Jordan listening to John, who was saying something totally new? to them. And we can get a clue to this by reading on in this same story in the same chapter of Matthew. So once John realizes that a lot of folks that he is baptizing were either Pharisees or Sadducees, he was compelled to admonish them, calling them vipers brood. Now, maybe that doesn't sound so bad nowadays, but since we have a different view of serpents, especially in a religious sense. But if you remember the religious sense of serpent, especially going back to Adam and Eve, where the serpent was the one that tempted Eve, then you understand the insult. 
the viper's brood, worse than a snake crawling on its belly. He then also rebukes them, asking them, who forewarned you of the coming wrath or the coming judgment of God? I mean, who told you about this stuff? How dare you? And then that's when he tells them a new and astonishing thing. That they may think they're safe from God's judgment because of their ancestry. They may think they're safe from God's judgment because of their position as priests or as law-following Jews. But they're not. They're not safe. So much so that he tells them, okay, so you're descended from Abraham and Sarah. So you're a priest at the temple. God can raise priests and descendants of Abraham and Sarah from the very rocks around here. And then he uses two agricultural metaphors to illustrate the severity of what could happen that any tree not bearing good fruit is to be cut down, not by man, but cut down by God. And that has been in preparation for a long time. The axe has been long laid at the root of the tree. And then he further adds to that by saying, any of the chaff from filtering out the wheat grains from the chaff, the chaff will be thrown into the unquenchable fire telling them that they are to be tried by God by the way they live, not by their birth and profession. And these two groups of people are probably shocked. I mean, the Pharisees themselves, by their ancestry and their strict adherence to the written and oral law, were fine when somebody pointed out someone, their, you know, pointed out, um, pointed the finger of deficiency in religious behavior and bringing about other people. But when applied to themselves, they were shocked and insulted. And the Sadducees had their priestly professions to hold them up above others, along with their only their rigid inheritance to only the written law. And here was this nobody who walked out of the wilderness and was pointing the finger at them and saying, Repent! Now, logically, since the Pharisees did have an idea, a belief of a coming Messiah, they might have been okay with a lot of what John was saying initially, simply because he too was saying someone is going to come. But when John aimed his accusations of the need for repentance on them, they were aghast. And as we know from later in Jesus' life, when, he, when Jesus did come upon them, so many of them were unwilling to listen to him and only, on, only focused on the fact that he was not what they were hoping for. They rejected him out of hand and made plans to eliminate him. All this is to simply illustrate the second point that John was trying to make. The first one was repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come or is near. 
The second one was bear fruit worthy of repentance. And why repent? Again, because the first thing John said was repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. It's coming. You need to be right with God. This whole lesson is telling us that things are about to happen that make it imperative that we, we, take stock in ourselves. To take a considered, difficult accounting of our words and deeds to prepare ourselves not just for joy at our Savior's birth, but also readying ourselves for that which is to come. I mean, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near and bear fruit worthy of that repentance. And what does it mean? What does it mean to repent? What was John talking about? What is repentance? Now, all of us have known and experienced a, a child, let's say, who is coerced or forced by parents to apologize to another person. Uh, the cynic in me, and believe me, I, that is one of my sins. <laughs> I am a cynic um, at times. The cynic in me says that a lot of the time, that faint, whispered, I'm sorry, from the child is really as much about him or her getting caught or getting in trouble as to being sorry for actually what he or she did. But the other part of me knows that she probably has, does have some age-appropriate concept of the true breaking of a connection with another person by their actions and words, and probably some faint, or not so faint, concept of, I need to fix this. My parents are making me do it right now, but it probably does start to sink in at some point. But an apology, even an obviously necessary, heartfelt apology, is not all there is to repentance. Repentance involves looking within seeking out that which is the cause of our less angelic nature. It is looking for the sinful impulses and the thought processes that cause us to not treat each other as Jesus commanded us to do. And what did Jesus command us to do? There were two of the greatest commandments. Love God with all your heart and soul and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Or in some cases, love your neighbor as Jesus, I have loved you. Either one of them works for me. Those two are the commandments that Jesus gave us. And when we're not doing that, that's when we need to figure our repentance, to take stock of ourselves. And it's incredibly difficult. It's not easy. It's not quick to actually change something inside yourself that is fundamental to your being, that is fundamental, fundament, uh, fundamental to your behavior, or that is part of a habit of thought and, and behavior and actions, it takes work. It takes work from you. It takes work from friends, family, each other here at church, Pastor Wall, but more importantly, 
needs help from God. You must ask help from God. True repentance causes a change in behavior, a change of outlook even. We can see and hopefully better understand and control that which causes us to sin. That which keeps us from fully loving each other as we are commanded to do and which in our hearts we know is the best way of treating our fellow human beings here on this earth. We cannot neglect, we cannot give up on that struggle. But we also must realize that we will often fail. The good thing is, God knows that as well. It's illustrated by the response in Peter's question to Jesus about the number of times we need to forgive each other. He asked Jesus, do we forgive each other up to seven times? And Jesus says, no, up to 70 times seven times if needed. That's not a direct quote, you understand, but I mean, that's how I read it. It's like 70 times seven times is a big number, and that's a lot of forgiveness. And I figure that's pretty much, you always forgive everybody. You know, that always forgive. And the great thing is, if we're forgiving each other like that, as often as that, isn't God doing the same or better? All we have to do is ask. So, in this season of Christmas, Amid the joy of the birth of our Lord Jesus, let's take a moment and give a thought to our own sins and how we can truly repent of what we do and say to each other and prepare ourselves to ask sincerely for God's forgiveness through his Son, Jesus Christ. Pater Virius et Spiritus Sanctus Sunt in nomini Domini, and the people of God say, Amen. Amen.